Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. On today's show, after her father's funeral, Jasmine invites her mother, Della, to join her on a literary tour of England, hoping the trip to sites that represent her bookish childhood will help heal the rift between them. Della has never travelled, left school early, and has buried herself in the devastating loss of her oldest child 25 years earlier. Now, far from the close-knit community, in the heart of a country that colonised their own, the pair reflect on writers' lives and the often dark histories that shaped them. Jasmine and Della are inspired to rediscover their own cultural wisdom and storytelling, even while grappling with grief, loss and the stories that are too hard to bear. That's the premise for Larissa Barron's latest novel, After Story, and Larissa joins me soon to talk about her book and the craft behind it. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. As she gently snored in the bed next to me, I realised I hadn't slept in a room with my mother since I was a child. Her hand clutching her pillow, I thought of mum earlier that evening, talking to the old actor pretending to be Sherlock Holmes, who'd seemed delighted with her. I doubt anyone had taken him seriously in years or made him have to improvise quite so much. My mother's ability to suspend disbelief and go along with someone else's fantasy was as much naivety as kindness. A glass-half-full attitude, she would have said. That's an excerpt from Larissa Barron's latest novel, After Story. The book follows Jasmine and her mother as they embark on a literary tour of England. Jasmine had hoped that the trip to sites that represented her bookish childhood would help heal the rift between them. Della has never travelled, left school early and has buried herself in the devastating loss of her eldest child 25 years earlier. Now, far from the close-knit community in the lives of a country, in the heart of a country that colonised their own, reflecting on writers' lives and the often dark histories that shaped them, Jasmine and Della are inspired to rediscover their own cultural wisdom and storytelling, even while grappling with grief, loss and the stories that are too hard to bear. Larissa Barrett joins me now to talk about After Story and the craft behind it. Larissa, welcome to Backstory. Thank you so much. What a lovely introduction. I, I really um, I really enjoyed this book. It was uh, one of those reads that you just kind of inhale in a single sitting. <laughs> and obviously for book nerdish types, this is a genuine delight um, because you are travelling through the, the very kind of uh, well, well-trodden path of of writers that will be quite familiar to people, but in a way that is completely unexpected. I really do want to ask about your decision to kind of set the book um, in this kind of a, you know, a tour um, and using the sort of days of the tour as the device throughout the book. What was what was that decision about for you? It, it pulled a few threads together. For me, 
I, I grew up reading that canon because I didn't have Indigenous literature available to me. The Tony Birches, Anita Heises, Alexis Wrights, you know, they, they weren't around and accessible to me. But I learned about the world through those books, particularly Dickens. I learned a lot about, you know, although it's a very different culture to me, the work of the Brontes and Jane Austen always spoke about people who had greater hopes for themselves than what society would allow them to. So I did learn about the world around me through all of those things. But the other thing about it, I guess, was um, I had done some of those kind of tours with my own mother when I was much younger. And although we never did the literary tour, I had to kind of make that up and research it and went on it with my with my um, now husband to work out how it could all come together and as part of the research. I guess from a writing point of view, from a storytelling point of view, those tours take you away from your comfort zone. So it takes my characters away from Australia, from their friends and their families. And anyone who's been on them knows what a hot house they are. You're on the bus, you're off the bus, you're on the bus, you're off the bus. So it kind of meant that my characters were kind of unable to get away from each other. They couldn't storm off. They couldn't, you know, slam down the phone. They were sort of facing each other. So it was a bit of that. And, and, you know, one of the things you alluded to is, for me, it was about engaging in what I loved about that canon. But, you know, it's also about celebrating the just as equally important, amazing canon of storytelling in my own Indigenous culture. And it allowed me to put them side by side. Yeah, it was a really interesting choice, I think, to sort of set the book in this in this way because really it's two Indigenous women who are going to sort of grapple with their own experiences in life into the heart of, you know, of really colonialism, I guess, uh, really exploring uh, writers that, that formed that canon that I guess informed um, to a certain extent the way Australia has thought about itself. And I found that actually incredibly moving, both the idea of uh, a mother and a daughter travelling together, which I've also done with my own mother. And I know, you know, that hot house experience can be incredibly challenging and also is the, some of the most valuable memories I think I will ever have uh, as well. But also, you know, I've, I've come from a, a colonial background. Um, I'm a mixed race person and kind of really thinking about what we were informing ourselves with as we're growing up and what that might have done to us and I um, you know and and how we look at it now and what we can still learn from that and I feel like this book kind of speaks on all those levels um, I do want to talk a bit about that because as um, this mother and daughter and perhaps let's set up the the story a little bit uh, would you like to sort of uh, describe uh, what the original premise of the book is for the listeners. Well, you did a great introduction. Oh, uh, anyway, so we can probably build on that, you know, um, and it, it looks at a, a, a mother and daughter who go on this tour. Um, as you mentioned, it's very much uh, Jasmine, who is university educated and now a young lawyer, uh, grappling with the, the recent death of her father and a, a legal case that she's had to deal with in her early career that's really challenged her about the responsibilities of decision-making around this complex case. But there's been a, a kind of uh, estrangement between the mother and daughter 
due to the, the differences in their lives. As you mentioned, Della is still back in the country town and never finished high school. But more than that, you know, the death of um, Della's oldest child, Jasmine's oldest sister, um, has left um, an ongoing grief in the family that ha- created another layer of trauma for them to navigate. And, and that was something in the story I was drawn to from my own work with victims of crime and with families who've had a death in custody and that that extra trauma that those families go through in trying to seek justice for a loved one who has been killed in circumstances that are that are questionable adds an extra dimension and layer to their loss of that person. And I guess as I've worked with those families over a long period of time, it struck me how little appreci- appreciated that that impact of the failure of our justice system was. Um, and so that is part of the, the thing that I guess Jasmine and Stella are trying to come to terms with is, is getting through that grief to, to reconnect with each other. Yeah, and it's really, look, I mean, there's you know, this kind of um, unravelling of the stories uh, behind what, you know, has shaped Della and, in fact, shaped her relationship with her children. Um, there's a, another sister, um, Leanne, who's um, very much, you know, more kind of black and white about the situation. Um, she's she's really um, essentially sort of has much more confl- open conflict with her mother, whereas you get the sort of general idea that Jasmine's more of a sort of peacemaker um, and maybe the rift between uh, her and her mother is harder to see. Um, but you kind of gradually are working out the relationships in this family and how they've been shaped by this absolutely devastating loss of the eldest child in, a, in what was... Um, you know, a horrific crime. Um, you know, as the, the trip progresses, um, you start to to see these things come out. But I want to talk about the cast of characters around them because um, just to, you know, really think about, as you said, being stuck in the tour, the thing that you're also stuck with on a tour are the people. And you've definitely... You've um, you've definitely reflected that really nicely. From my very limited tour experience, I have avoided them like the plague. Um, but, uh, you know, on the few occasions when I've gone on tours, um, you really do get to know people in this quite intense way. Um, and, you know, would you like to talk about the cast that, that they sort of find themselves knocking up against? Yeah. So I, I deliberately made the choice that it would be a kind of bespoke tour, so not a lot of people on there which kept the cast a little smaller and allowed for greater interactions and um, there were a couple of um, characters there that um, obviously were set up as um, great foils for the the tour. There's a professor of literature who's very old school and then a a younger academic who's um, interested in in, uh, feminism and gender studies and has done a PhD around Virginia Woolf. Um, So there's sort of a, a clash of, of what we see as these tensions within academia playing out. But there there is also, um, you know, another set of sisters on the tour, which is, as you rightly point out, the sister relationships um, feature very strongly, as, does, as you mentioned, um, 
Jasmine's relationship with her sister Leanne. There's also Della's relationship with her sister Kitty, um, which is also a very mm. strong um, relationship through the book with its own tensions but its own kind of equilibrium as well. Um, so one of the things I guess I hope the book clubs talk about is what it says about sisters, but definitely the Boston sisters who are on the tour were based on real-life uh, characters that I'd encountered. <laughs> On my trip, long before I even thought of writing this story, but immediately came to mind as the thought that come on this trip. Um, and then, of course, an Australian couple that allow for a bit of a, a reflection of a non-Indigenous perspective on some, some things and to ask questions once they understand Della's um, heritage to, to kind of prompt her a little bit to ask questions that perhaps Jasmine would never think to ask her. Um, and through through this, this kind of prompting and storytelling, um, the, the two, my two main characters, Adela and Jasmine, you know, start to realise how much they're drawn together by the storytelling of their own culture, which I guess Della hasn't really had the confidence around. She hasn't seen herself in that elder role because there were other elders in the community, but it's now her time. And Jasmine, who embraced a canon that, you know, that she that gave her comfort and insight when she was younger, but through her university education, perhaps grew into the habit um, of that system and not valuing that knowledge and that storytelling. So for both of them, there's a very personal journey um, about the stories of their own culture that, that, that flow from what they're seeing around them. There was a lot in this that felt quite real, you know, obviously in, in the reactions between the mother and the daughter, um, you know, uh, quite a few occasions throughout the, the story, Della sort of, you know, reaches a, a point where she's kind of, you know, she lets out her emotions around something. There's a, a kind of parallel storyline where a young girl has gone missing um, and it's obviously triggering this great loss that um, Della experienced and, and you know, the, the additional trauma of being, um, you know, treated rather like rather than as the victim of crime um, as a presumed perpetrator of a crime and you know threatened with losing her own children um, digging into that that deeper intergenerational traumatic loss of, of the stolen generations um, so she's obviously going through these enormous things um, and trying to hold it together you know f- seeking solace in alcohol on occasion or on many occasions um, and then these has these outbursts and Jasmine's default is to feel embarrassed and to apologise. And there's a moment where I think Della says, you don't have to apologise for me. And Jasmine, you know, kind of her retort is obviously, I do. Um, but I think I feel like that's one of those moments where you go, here's someone who's actually trying to, you know, it, maybe not always in the healthiest ways, but very understandably express what it is that she's going through. And Jasmine, who who feels like that's not appropriate in those contexts, um, it's a really interesting way that these bigger issues are playing out, but, you know, the, the broader sort of societal issues of the things we're not talking about that actually do need to break into this kind of veneer of, you know, supposed civility that's actually hiding the great wrongs that have been done. I sort of found this a quite interesting metaphor for all of that. Yeah, and I guess for me, um, Jasmine very much embodies the idea um, that is often pushed on on younger Indigenous people who are you know who are who are doing well and achieving in 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 the education system in the you know in their professions that you shouldn't be a troublemaker you know and that idea that that 
that Jasmine has taken on as a result of the racism around her in her country town of not being a troublemaker. She sees her sister Leanne as, as a troublemaker as, and she wants to, she aspires to be one of the good ones. And, and, and as you say, related to that are all these things that explain why her family is in the circumstances they're in uh, that Della has lived through, that Della carries a lot of grief and pain from a whole range. And, and sadly, because I've seen it in, in women in her position where they've lost children in circumstances that are completely beyond their control, that they feel guilt about it. And it's heartbreaking to see a mother carry that for a child when the child's death was in no way their fault and the system refuses to find a way to make that determination. So, you know, for me it felt like there was a there, there was a way of challenging the fact that we don't give voice to somebody like Della. They don't have a natural place where their grief is acknowledged and heard and Jasmine becomes a bit complicit in that. And only when all of these things are realised, particularly by Jasmine, to understand what she's looking at and, and connections she can make when she has a client walk in the door. She can see the connection between what that client's circumstance and their broader family history, yet mm. she can't see it in her own family. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It's really... Because, you know, she's showing this great compassion for the person that she's... Uh, you know, this young woman that she's representing who has committed herself a horrific crime but is um, the result of this truly awful, um, abusive childhood. Um, and, you know, this is something that she feels very strongly about. In fact, it's sort of an interest. I found this an interesting kind of paradox in Jasmine's character that, in fact, she claims on the one hand that the reason she wanted to become a lawyer was to, um, to you know, kind of better understand things and but it wasn't just to do with her her sister, but in a fl- the flip of that, it kind of was to do with her sister. I think she's sort of a little bit of a fault. Well, they're both faulty narrators, obviously, for their own lives. And there is that kind of, I think, unacknowledged thing that, in fact, Jasmine maybe hasn't even really um, tapped into exactly the effect that the loss of a sibling she barely knew because she was three years old uh, when the her older sibling was taken um, you know, really has affected the course of all of their lives. I'm really glad you picked that up because, to me, um, in a way, Jasmine has more faults than you'd expect that she's a younger person, so less self-reflection, perhaps a little bit more hubris, and she's she's succeeded in lots of ways. So uh, she's she keeps being told she's an exception and exceptional, and it's probably not forced her to be as self-reflective, whereas Della is exactly... You know, there's no airs and graces about Della and she doesn't expect much from life. And Leanne, her sister, is also, as you said, really down to earth and, and everything's black and white and she calls it as she sees it. And I did try and, and deliberately seed some things in... I mean, you don't want your characters to not go on a journey. And you, and as anyone who knows, every time you put yourself overseas, you learn so much about yourself, whether it's a short trip or a long period living somewhere else. And I really wanted to give Jasmine a chance to do that. And I've seeded some things in there where I, I think she hasn't been for self She's very critical of Della's reliance on alcohol, but if you look at her behaviour, she drinks just as much and she never once stops to think about how she uses alcohol the same way her mother does. And so there's still, like, I wanted to kind of leave it that 
at the end of the novel, we've probably got Jella coming much more deeply to a to a place of of um, self reflection, and Jasmine's come a long way, but she's still got a way to go. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Larissa, I would be remiss if not um, talking about uh, the amount of research you've clearly done for this book um, in putting it together. You mentioned uh, earlier that you actually went on a literary tour of of England um, with your now husband to uh, to research this, and you've also obviously uh, dug into the lives of the authors that you've you've covered here. Um, it is one of the important devices in the book is kind of reflecting on the secrets or the hidden histories or the kind of just general experiences of the authors and how they reflect the, the characters that are, that are sort of finding out about them. Can you talk about this aspect of the book, the research that you did to create it? Yeah, I guess it felt as soon as I was interested in the idea of setting the, the, the story that I wanted to tell. So I was drawn to the story from my legal work and, and seeing this impact on um, victims of crime and, and death in, families who had a death in custody. Um, and, and, and actually, uh, maybe a, a trigger of it too was there was one time I was travelling with my mother and there was a... a a mystery case on the TV and everywhere we went we would follow the cases that played out um, it kind of captured our imagination so there was a bit of thinking about about that as a as a uh, you know, those seeds of the story and the more I I had the instinct that the literary tour might or a tour might be the thing um, I started to put together the idea of pulling together some of the authors writers who'd been really instrumental to me and not all of them made it I would admit that another author who was very influential in my early reading was George Orwell who gets a couple of mentions in the Bloomsbury um, set connections but when uh, as part of the London walking tours uh, but didn't sort of become a big presence in the book um, so so uh, but it, it, I kind of had an idea of, of the books that I wanted to engage with because of that that was a very personal um, aspect of pulling the story together you know I love Jane Austen I love the Bronte sisters I, I and I went back and Interestingly, as much as going to the places and getting more of a sense of the authors and how their stories were inspired or, you know, where they came from, was actually also going back and rereading those books and realising how much I still loved them because they'd meant so much to me when I'd read them earlier and some I'd reread in the intervening years from time to time. But I guess anyone who grows up loving books um, knows that they can become real friends. Mm. So another part of it was just re-engaging it. One of the, the loveliest places to go to, although Jane Austen was always miserable when she lived there, was Bath because in... Um, you know, when you walk around there, you can see all the places that she's used in the books where the st of stories you know really well. And I, I kind of do a little bit of a riff on that when we are in Bath. So for me, it's always really interesting. And of course, people's own lives, the author's lives throw up things that, that obviously will re resonate with all of them. And, you know, the secrets in uh, that were part of Virginia Woolf's family, her the, the, the allegations of abuse within her own family, uh, 
you know, it's a middle-class white family, but there are resonances of that in other, you know, in, in other family stories. And so you can kind of draw some of those human threads together. And I have to say, I didn't have a clear idea when I picked the places or the authors about how they would weave through the story. And it was actually a large part of the craft was working out where my instincts or my, my own personal taste had led me to and then developing my characters in the story. And I think it's really easy when you're a writer and you've done a lot of research to tell the audience how much you know about the kind of teapots mm. or the kind of cakes people were eating <laughs> and to kind of pull back from that and actually really focus on the fact that what you're, you're wanting to show them is who Della is and who Jasmine is and their story and what they see and what's important to them. So um, I guess there's always a lot of – what I've learned from this process is that there's a lot of research that you really want to share with people, but perhaps it's going to cloud the book out, especially one like this where I think I was already quite ambitious with the threads I wanted to put through it. Yeah, and uh, you have very helpfully put a uh, Jasmine's reading list <laughs> at the end, which lists all of the books um, that obviously are related to the text that you've um, that you've created, and uh, an idea of if someone actually wants to go and do the tour. If we ever get to travel again, Larissa, <laughs> that is may, that may be something that that people um, want to do. And I sort of, I kind of like to imagine actually after looking at that whether you know there perhaps would be a change now in a tour of, um, for example, the wonderful uh, you know Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander authors that we have now. Um, I would love to see something like that emerge of a, a literary tour. Um, yes. I've had a few people suggest that. So I think, you know, the Anita Heist birthplace, <laughs> you know. Yeah. The Tony Birch, Tony Birch's Melbourne, they could all be literary too as we could start to engage with. <laughs> yeah, just hopefully the authors aren't like, just get the hell <laughs> out, of, out of my street. Um, yeah. But look, I, I, I do want to kind of, um, you know, the, I guess this is one of the kind of delightful aspects of the book that you're, you're travelling back through those things. It did make me reappraise my relationship with a lot of those books as well. I was thinking particularly around things like Rudyard Kipling's book and, you know, these these kind of overtly colonial texts, but also others where there's now, you're now thinking about what were the things I wasn't thinking about when I was younger, when I was reading these books. And you do get something else out of it as well as that connection, as you say, with something that, that really fed you as a child, which, can't, you know, that the importance of that is really obviously, um, you know, something that you can't, escape um in your adult life but you know i i did want to kind of think about the the other characters within your own story um that that uh, are kind of really central and important and perhaps undersung um you know a little bit in the text there's this focus on the mother-daughter relationship but throughout it you really get the idea that the aunties are the people that are that are really looking after everyone, the, the role of this broader family, I found that incredibly moving because, you know, this is mentioned throughout the text, like the importance of, um, you know, the broader community within the small town um, to make sure that everyone's looked after. But very particularly for both Della and Jasmine, their relationships with their, their aunties are hugely important. Um, they've, in fact, been the real mother figures in their life. So Auntie Elaine for Della and Auntie Kiki for uh, for Jasmine, they've really taken on those roles. Can you talk about that aspect um, and how that impacts on on the characters in the text? 
Yeah, there's a couple of threads there. I mean, I guess um, the 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 Della um, Kiki relationship as sisters. Um, you know, I, I was really interested. Uh, you know, I think when, when people look at siblings from the outside, they get a, have a different view of of what it's like. I, I, sometimes, in in terms of um, strong, robust feedback, nobody gives it more strongly than my brother. <laughs> but I, my relationship with him is is such that I I completely know whenever he says anything like that to me he says it because he loves me and if anyone ever said anything negative about me he would be the first person to defend me so we have these very complex relationships with siblings and I was you know keen to kind of uh, reflect that um, and but the 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 broader connections there that you speak of felt to me like they were really important to show because they help you understand how we live as as an Aboriginal family in an Aboriginal community, and it's it's completely normal for us to be when we're growing up to be part, to be brought up with a kind of communal parenting model where you do spend time with your aunt, you do spend time with your cousins. We would say that in our culture, aunts and uncles are, are more like mothers and fathers. Like you, you have a set of mothers and fathers and cousins, first cousins are brothers and sisters and people will often use that language in terms of how they speak about what in a European construct would be an aunt. They speak of them as a, in a parent role. Um, so that was another thing that I wanted to, to explore and really highlight. It not only reflected my upbringing, but I know how foreign that is to people. In fact, the fa- failure to recognise those as strong community and family relationships is something that comes up in the work I do in child protection where non-Indigenous child protection workers will look at a scenario where a child is sleeping in different houses every night and say there's a neglected child because they don't understand those fam- family dynamics which are an important part of the way we bring, pe- bring children up in our community. I, there was never a time I didn't feel looked after safe and that people knew where I was when I had had times of living in those very communal parenting situations. And then the other element of all of that, which I guess um, it was really important to me and you've highlighted, is the roles of the, the Auntie Elaine. So in our communities, women who have, have earned the title of Auntie play these enormous roles. And, you know, she... She was an amalgam of several really important women in my life. Her voice and Della's voice were easier for me to find than than Jasmine's, even though Jasmine's is closer to my own experience because I'd heard those women so much in my own life. They were very important to me. And I guess with Arnie Elaine, what I wanted to look at was um, Jasmine and and Della, when they're travelling, have a lot of memories of Auntie Elaine and it, it was a way of highlighting that when we lose an elder like that, we lose so much knowledge if we don't take the time to really listen and record and value that knowledge. Um, but at the same time, in the book, not only has she played an important role in Della's life, but she's also played an important role in Jasmine's mm. and she's actually a force. It's their collective memories of Arnie Elaine who who is the biggest bridge for them to find a way to connect to each other and to me that really helped show the importance of figures like Auntie Elaine because 
not only are they our key storytellers and our key healers, they are usually women who are involved with everything across the whole whole of our communities. Um, but they are also they also play these um, enormously important roles in keeping the the social fabric of our community together. And and in a way, her her passing and and the fact that there's a perhaps a recognition, particularly from Jasmine, that maybe she hasn't paid enough attention to what Arnie Elaine has to say while she still had her is a, is a warning. But the role that she continues to play in terms of the memories people have of her is, I guess, I intended as a, as, as a way of honouring the role that those women continue to play in our community. I guess this kind of really naturally leads to to something that is really a fundamental part of this of this book, and in fact, you know, um, I'm sure <laughs> um, broader society, um, and that is really the importance of storytelling, particularly in this context, and particularly for these women um, and their community, and what that means, and the, the what happens when there is the loss of that, um, or the things that you can't talk about because part of your stories is all of the story, um, and. And I think that this is really kind of one of the major things that Della herself has to overcome is she's kind of lost her voice. Um, she's she. I feel like that this part of her that's been taken has meant that she has been dampened, that she hasn't been able to share things, that she's kind of pushed her children away a little bit. This journey through the lives of other storytellers is a way of her finding her way back to that idea of storytelling and to become the next Auntie Elaine, I guess. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and, and the importance of storytelling in these contexts? Yeah, I guess that, that, that that's, a, that's a great account of, of what I've tried to do with the character, that she initially just, the notes she takes are almost, they just are almost incoherent. They're not to her of what she's seeing on the tour. Only when she starts to start writing about the things that Arnie Elaine told her that she's remembering, does she does, you know, does she find her voice and it starts to become coherent? And there are other ways, of course, in the book that she builds on that and she finds a different way of expressing herself when she's not really been able to do that before. And I guess one of the ideas I was, I was playing with, apart from the, you know, the way in which those stories connect Jasmine and, and Della in the way we've, we've said, is that I've seen it particularly in my legal work, but even probably more so in my film work, about how important it is. As lawyers, we're often translating somebody's experience to a court using their facts to go against the legal frameworks we're trying to explain it in. One of the things I love about film is that you, you, you're not a translator. Your role as a filmmaker is to create the space for somebody to tell their story in their own words. And it's not just the, the, you know, the, the joy of seeing how much impact that has when somebody has the privilege of hearing that voice that they might not otherwise hear. I've noticed how it can transform people, especially people who've been in positions where they've been disempowered and silenced. And I probably learnt that a lot by working with the women who um, I made the film after the apology with, where, you know, women who have had the experience, whether as mothers or grand grandmothers, of having children wrongfully taken um, and then there are real legal prohibitions about being able to speak out where there is a care order in place. So when there have been egregious mistakes made by child protection departments, 
people who've had to suffer through that or who are, who are actually in the position of having to challenge a wrongful removal are completely silenced and seeing how important it was for people to be able to tell their own story was something that was, was an important revelation for me. So as much as it's important for audiences, I could see how important it was. We talk about the fact that we tell our stories as, a, as healing. I think we understand that intellectually, but I, I guess I'd been lucky enough through the process of making film to see real examples of that. And I guess I wanted to show that through what we see in Yellow, to just you know show the, the sort of agency that can be regained when you get to be able to tell your own story in your own words. And once you can start to do that, it can actually be a way in which you find the, the, the greater ability to overcome some of, some of the trauma or at least try to find ways to address it, even to perhaps acknowledge it's there in the first place. Do you think, I mean, look, it's obviously that, that question is that, you know, people are creating works um, that speak to them and that they, that come from that place inside them that motivates one to write. Um, but do you think it is really an important role um, in, in changing these structures to have young readers um, of all backgrounds um, read work by Indigenous authors so that they, they can have a part of them really informed, that kind of, that soulful or humanist part of them informed by these stories? Yeah, look, I think there's a range of things that happen uh, when, when we read broadly and, and that, can, that are important to have happen here in Australia where we're still looking at. So, so it's such a difficult relationship in many ways between First Nations people and the, and the rest of the country. And the first, of course, you know, there's a, there's a couple of things that I guess um, I see in the books that I really respond to of, of First Nations authors and, and I guess I'm drawn to in my own storytelling. And the first is, you know, not seeing us as victims. I, one of the things I do both in my filmmaking and I, I do in After Story is to show the agency of Aboriginal people and, you know, for, even for people who've suffered, you know, incredible injustices and ongoing trauma, there is agency, there is resilience, there is love, there is affection, there's generosity and there's deep, deep knowledge. A part of that too, I think, is the real ambition to engage Australians with histories they don't know of. You know, I think uh, Tony Birch and Anita Heiss would be, Alexis Wright, Melissa Lukashenko, all of those great authors um, who are obviously some of my personal favourites do that. Uh, Anita Heiss's most recent book takes a history I think most people don't know of uh, and brings it to life. But it helps us think about stories differently but with a different lens. And I guess for me one of the things that I wanted to respond to in my work, uh, and particularly with After Story, was I've felt through um, various roles that I have um, in academia as, as a broadcaster on ABC, there is an increasing interest from non-Indigenous Australians about Indigenous cultural knowledge, uh, whether it's storytelling, whether it's learning language and place names, understanding the technologies around fire burning, understanding more about how we live sustainably. Um, and I think that's an incredibly positive thing and I think the more we can engage that interest and that curiosity, it's really important. And I guess the other thing that I guess I, I, I try to push on is that I think that there's a, a, a an understanding that there's knowledges, uh, Indigenous knowledges that can give insight as, about the environment and how we live sustainably. But the other thing you learn from a culture that's survived for over 65,000 years is how to live with each other. And there is actually a lot in our culture 
that explains how you have to live with each other, that, that provides that knowledge system that helped that sustainability for 65,000 years. So I use two cultural stories in the book to illustrate various things. Um, and, and one of them I chose particularly because it was one, a very strong law story about our responsibility to children. Um, and I deconstruct those stories in a way um, that, that tries to show that when we, we look at what can look like quite simple storytelling, you know, I call them cultural stories. They're often referred to as dreamtime stories. They're often packaged as children's stories, beautiful illustrations. But there is deep knowledge, there's deep law, there's deep sophistication, there's science in those stories. And I use two of those as an example to say, you know, you're kind of just scratching the surface when you listen to our stories. Um, there's one, one phrase that came to my mind often as a kind of mantra in writing the book, um, which is... Um, something that I, I heard very young in life and I've kept it as a, as a key learning, which is true wisdom comes from listening, not speaking. Um, and it reminds us of how important it is to, to listen to story and to really deeply listen to it, not to just do it as an exercise or a, even as a, as a pleasure, though. You know, we all love reading for pleasure, at least I do. But there is something more serious about it as well. If you really want to get that wisdom, you have to be really reflective. And I use both Stella and Arnie Elaine as examples of where something that is actually deeply knowledgeable is often dismissed as a, a strange, crazy comment um, to show how in our everyday life we, we may run the risk of doing exactly what Jasmine does, which is not taking those knowledges as seriously as we should. I love this idea as well that um, that these are stories to be heard or to be read and reread to gain more from them every time and build on that as a system of knowledge. This idea, you know, I guess we think of, you know, reading hard histories or as a way of like learning things, but the way that stories can get inside you, um, you know, and that can they can be revelatory is an incredibly powerful thing and one that I think you've really illustrated uh, with this book. Um, Larissa, I would love to continue to chat with you. I'm sure there is plenty more uh, to talk about. Um, but thank you so much for joining me today on Backstory. Thank you so much. That was Larissa Berendt, uh, author of After Story, uh, which is out now through UQP. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.